Welcome to the new Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller from WMHT.org. David Allen Miller conducts the Albany Symphony and he provides commentary on the WMHT live broadcast. David's commentary is full of fascinating stories about the music, the performances, and more. In order to keep the program mostly music, some of what he provides ends up on the cutting room floor. This podcast contains no music, but it does contain all of David Allen Miller's commentary from the concert broadcast on WMHT Live on WMHT-FM, your classical companion. The Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony Concert Broadcast is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. Just a word about the genesis of this evening's program. I have always loved Mendelssohn's music to Midsummer Night's Dream, particularly that incredible overture which he composed when he was a mere 17 years old in the year 1826. And I've done the piece, uh, that selection of overture plus the four entreacts or or interludes from from the complete incidental music, but I've never done all the music, and I've never done the music with stage staging or, or theatrical elements attached to it. And I had a series of concerts I did last fall in Cleveland with a wonderful chamber orchestra that plays free concerts all over Cleveland. We actually did six performances of the beautiful selections from Midsummer Night's Dream. And the whole time I was working on it and performing those concerts, I kept thinking, wouldn't it be wonderful to do a fully theatrical version where the audience actually can hear what exactly it was, what text it was that inspired Mendelssohn to write each of these fabulous interludes and all the music that he contributed to his complete incidental music. So when I got home, I discussed with our executive director, Brian Ritter, the idea of approaching Capitol Repertory Theater, our our good friend Maggie Mancini Cahill, about collaborating with them and having her supply actors. So we had a a nice discussion, and Maggie, being a great and very generous colleague, uh, agreed to supply these five gifted actors to actually perform scenes, extensive scenes, from the play and to sort of fuse those or integrate those in with Mendelssohn's magical music. Because Mendelssohn not only wrote the overture as a young man and then went back and wrote these uh, entreacts, these interludes, but he also wrote a a good deal of additional music. He wrote two choral numbers for women's chorus uh, along with two female soloists, with two soprano soloists to represent the fairy music. And he also wrote a good number of what are called melodrams, works for spoken voice uh, with musical accompaniment. If you think Lincoln Portrait, it's sort of like a, an early version of, of that approach to composition. So I thought, let's do a whole fabulous theatrical production, putting Mendelssohn's music completely in its proper context. And then having thought of that, I thought, well, it would be really nifty to uh, put on the first half of the concert, to have a very brief first half, and to invite some gifted young composers to wrestle with this idea of melodrama, particularly in the context of Shakespeare's great poetry. So I talked to our our great friend and uh, Music Alive resident composer, George Sontakis, who lives in the Hudson Valley and has had a long relationship with the orchestra, but has for many years been a distinguished professor at Bard College and at the Bard Conservatory at Bard College, and asked him whether he could identify three students or, or recent students of his who might be able to fashion melodrams from some of the portions of the play that Mendelssohn ended up not setting. He loved the idea. He's a very theatrical fellow himself and something of a, a thespian. And uh, so he uh, identified three young composers, two of whom are currently students at the Bard Conservatory, and one of whom is a recent graduate and has just started a, a master's program at Juilliard. And uh, we commissioned each of them to write 
a melodrama utilizing a different text from Midsummer Night's Dream. And we gave them a, a number of, of choices, and they picked the, the text that they felt the most strongly about and then created a sort of musical envelope around and under the text. And our actors on the first half of the performance, as you'll hear in a moment, performed the texts in, in the context of these composed pieces. And uh, I'm delighted to say that they took very different approaches to the material. So you'll hear that each piece kind of um, approaches spoken word in a somewhat different way. To set the scene, uh, the first two melodrams come from the, the first scene of Act One of the play. And as you surely remember, since I know you're all familiar with A Midsummer Night's Dream, the play begins with Duke Theseus uh, and his bride-to-be Hippolyta, and uh, a nobleman named Aegeus shows up. It seems that Aegeus's daughter Hermia is in love with a young nobleman named Lysander. But Aegeus wants his daughter Hermia to marry another, a different nobleman named Demetrius, whom she does not love. And so uh, Demetrius and Hermia and Lysander and the duke are all there, and they're all kind of arguing. Uh, Aegeus, of course, is... is uh, insisting on on being able to choose his daughter's mate, which at the time, of course, I guess was the policy. And Theseus reminds Hermia that there are only two choices, according to Athenian law, uh, for her situation. She must either do as her father says and marry Demetrius, or she must face a punishment of death or of going into a convent, eschewing the company of men forever. I didn't even know they had convents in ancient Athens, but go no. Uh, learn something new every day. Uh, and so at the end of that scene, uh, everyone but Hermia and Lysander, her boyfriend, leave the stage. And she and he have this discussion. He says, you know, I have an aunt who lives just outside of Athens, through the forest, through the woods, outside of the, beyond the arm of Athenian law. Let's you and I flee there in the night and go to my aunt's house and be married there and love each other. And she says, by all means, let's do it. And in fact, that's the scene that Lukas uh, Olenik sets, our first young composer. Lukas has take that, taken that set. And Lukas is from Prague, from the Czech Republic. And I, I think actually takes a rather sort of dark, uh, very uh, dramatic uh, uh, Eastern European kind of approach to the material. Instead of just uh, having the narration be kind of in the middle and putting music around it, he actually kind of breaks the narration apart. And so they give these kind of different lines that in the play would only last, the entire text would only last about 30 seconds. In Lukas's piece, this 30-second text is expanded to last kind of a, a whole eight minutes or so. So here now is the first of our brand new melodrams. This is the melodrama by Lukas Olenik, currently a student at the Bard Conservatory. He was born in 1987, and the title of the melodrama is That Fire Which Burned the Carthage Queen. Kevin Craig West is Lysander, and Brenny Rabin is Hermia. The orchestra is the Albany Symphony, connected by me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. That was our first new melodrama on this evening's mainly Mendelssohn program. It was by Lukas Olenik. It was The Fire That Burned the Carthage Queen. Now, our, our second uh, melodrama comes also from the first act and the first scene. It's just a little bit later in this scene. Uh, Hermia and Lysander have decided to flee, and Hermia's friend Helena has appeared. Uh, Helena, just to make matters even more complicated was the girlfriend of Demetrius, the man who wants to marry Hermia. And she is now spurned by Demetrius, so I guess has been offered a better deal by Hermia's father, Aegeus. And she is, of course, heartbroken and still pursuing Demetrius, who now completely spurns her. So at the end of this scene, Lysander and Hermia confide in Helena 
that they are in fact planning to flee Athens. And they leave the stage, and Helena has this very passionate and kind of painful soliloquy that ends Act 1, Scene 1, about, uh, you know, I'm just as good-looking as she is, and I don't know why people like her so much better. Uh, It's a kind of a jealous, angry rant about why she's so unlucky. The text is, How Happy Some or Other Some Can Be. This one is by Shen Iwen. Iwen is a a recent graduate of the Bard Conservatory, currently a student at the Juilliard School doing a master's in composition. He was born in 1986. He's a native of Shanghai, China, a very gifted young composer and pianist. And uh, in this melodrama, Hilary Parker plays Helena. Once again, this melodrama, a little bit similar to the first one in that uh, it takes a very dramatic text and builds a lot of musical texture around it. What, what was fascinating about this one is is Iwen took a great deal of... Um, quotation in this. So you'll hear actually at the very beginning the the famous Mendelssohn chords, and you'll even hear little bits of the Wedding March, as well as uh, some Mahler and some Wagner quotes, which I guess to him have real resonance related to the text. Uh, Once again, here now, Shen Iwen's melodrama, The Helena is Hilary Parker, accompanied by the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. That was our second melodrama of the evening, Shen Iwen's How Happy Some or Other Some Can Be. Hilary Parker was Helena, accompanied by the Albany Symphony. And for our final melodrama, we have a rather different approach to the form of melodrama. This is maybe a somewhat more traditional idea of melodrama. Benjamin Pazetsky, uh, also currently a student at the Bard Conservatory, born in 1986, has actually set the entire burlesque, the entire play, Pyramus and Thisbe, which, as you remember, is this ridiculous, hysterical sort of Romeo and Juliet-like play that Bottom and Peter Quince and all the so-called mechanicals, the kind of working men of Athens, have been preparing to perform at Duke Theseus's wedding. And then finally, in the final act, in the fifth act, they actually put on the production of Pyramus and Thisbe, which is just a ridiculous, terribly acted kind of uh, performance. And so Ben has actually set the entire scene, quite remarkably, in about eight minutes. And to do that, he's actually kept his orchestration extraordinarily light and very simple, almost sati-like in the simplicity of it. And uh, there's a huge amount of text. And I think it's quite wonderful how the text and the music interact sort of back and forth, and then also how the music often underpins the uh, the text. So here now, the entire story of Pyramus and Thisbe, as you recall, Pyramus is a young man, Thisbe a young woman. They can only meet secretly through a chink, a hole in the wall. Uh, And finally, they agree to meet. Pyramus gets there and discovers that, at least he thinks he discovers, that that Thisbe has been eaten by a lion and uh, performs a whole credible lament uh, about losing his beloved Thisbe, who in fact hasn't been eaten by anyone at all. So here now, uh, Benjamin Pazetsky's the world premiere of his Pyramus and Thisbe, Burlesque for Orchestra performed by the Albany Symphony and our entire ensemble of five actors from Capitol Repertory Theater, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. The Conductor's Notes podcast, featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony concert broadcast, is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. And so, now in the second half of our program, we turn to the main work on our program. It is, of course, Mendelssohn's complete incidental music, 
to uh, the play Midsummer Night's Dream by William Shakespeare. Just a little bit of background about how Mendelssohn came to write this music. Felix Mendelssohn as a child was one of the most precocious composers in all of music history, including Mozart. I mean, he really ran a close second to Mozart and may even have exceeded him as a, as a kid composer. And the work, well, one of the two works that is most dazzling from Mendelssohn's youth uh, is this overture to Midsummer Night's Dream, which he composed at the age of 17 in 1826. The other most remarkable work from his youth is his octet, which I believe he composed a year earlier at the age of 16. Mendelssohn, of course, grew up in the lap of luxury in Berlin. Uh, his father was an extraordinarily successful and wealthy banker. His grandfather, of course, the great German humanist philosopher Moses Mendelssohn, not only did Mendelssohn grow up in the lap of luxury, but he grew up in, in one of the most cosmopolitan, sophisticated houses in one of the most cosmopolitan, sophisticated cities in Europe. It was really a center. The Mendelssohn house was a center for all of the artistic and cultural figures of Berlin to meet. His mother ran essentially an ongoing salon. And it was uh, such a special world in which Mendelssohn grew up that actually when he was an even smaller child, even before the age of 10 and from then on, uh, his father would hire a small orchestra so that Felix and Fanny's new compositions, he and his sister were both very accomplished composers, could be performed at sort of weekend uh, soirees, weekend musicales for all the friends of the family. So he grew up not only becoming a piano virtuoso, but being a composition virtuoso and conducting his own little orchestra paid for by his wealthy banker father. Uh, he certainly had every possible advantage as a young musician and composer growing up, but he took those advantages to heart and uh, became an extraordinarily mature, uh, gifted composer at a very young age. I'm always struck, uh, the first music you'll hear is the, is the overture, which he wrote uh, in this year, 1826, at the not only the fantasy and the creativity of the overture, but of the incredible maturity of this work. Uh, in, in a way, um, it's kind of a, a staggeringly original work in that it's it was initially intended to be a standalone piece. Uh, Felix even said, I'm going out into the garden to dream a Midsummer Night's Dream. He was extremely well-read. The family knew uh, um, the creators of the new version of Shakespeare, the German version of Shakespeare, Schlegel, and Tieck, and uh, knew them well and knew the edition. And Felix had read extensively and, and was a huge fanatical follower of Shakespeare's plays and uh, loved this piece more than any other. Uh, what's most impressive is that in writing this so-called overture, he really was writing a tone poem, a 13-minute tone poem. And in it, he put all of the ideas of the play. You know, you actually can hear Bottoms braying as an ass at a certain point in the overture. You hear music associated with Theseus and music associated with the young lovers. You hear the fairy chords at the beginning and uh, this incredible, flitting, beautiful fairy music that pervades the overture, this magical music. So an amazing uh, start to this evening's presentation. You hear a little bit of text in which uh, Theseus and Hippolyta talk about four moons, four days until our wedding. And Felix, of course, put those four, these constant references to four into the overture. There are, in fact, these four magic chords which introduce the overture. So the overture stood alone as a piece, and it was really that work that made Felix a huge international superstar as a composer, as a very young man. And it was 16 years later that the King of Prussia invited Felix to create music for a brand new production of the complete play, uh, using the overture as the sort of jumping off point. And Felix graciously complied and created another 35 or almost 40 minutes of music between melodrams, entre-acts, as well as these two beautiful choral 
uh, movements that he created for the fairy choir of, of young ladies uh, with two soprano soloists. And uh, so this music, of course, was really intended to be performed within the context of a full production of the play. We certainly, in our production, had no intention of producing the whole play. And in fact, our actors did minimal stage activity. They put on funny hats and things, uh, but they pretty much did a, a reading of big portions of the play. But my idea was really, instead of the play with music, to just reverse it a bit and celebrate Mendelssohn's music and put the play, as much of the play as would be productive and useful and helpful, around the music. So in essence, we've turned the play with music into the music with some of the play. You'll hear not only the overture, but you'll hear those great entreacts, the famous uh, fairy scherzo, which introduces Puck's appearance in the play, talking to a fairy. Uh, you'll hear that incredibly uh, poignant and disturbing uh, so-called intermezzo at the end of Hermia's terrifying nightmare, which morphs magically into some kind of country bumpkin music, which introduces Bottom and all the thespians rehearsing their play. You'll hear that beautiful nocturne uh, just toward the end of the play, after Puck has finally charmed all the young couples and put the fairy magic drops in the right people's eyes and, and talks about how Jack shall now have his Jill, all will be well. And this beautiful horn solo that's a very famous a piece in the horn repertoire. Beautiful music. Uh, and then, of course, you'll hear the most famous selection from this uh, body of music, the famed Wedding March, uh, which whenever I hear that piece in concert, I'm always amazed that some human actually created it. I just thought it had been here since the beginning of time, that it had somehow been formulated in the Big Bang and uh, had just been in the ether ever since. But it was, in fact, Felix Mendelssohn who... Uh, who actually created that march and wrote it down. Uh, and it's a grand thing how it sort of introduces the final act, the wedding act of the play. But then also you'll hear all sorts of other music, these two fairy choruses with this fantastic chorus that's made up of uh, students, young ladies from five schools in our region, two brilliant soprano soloists, uh, as well as the melodrams that I mentioned earlier, uh, a good number of those. So here now, uh, really a, a whole journey through the, the play uh, with all of Mendelssohn's music, A Midsummer Night's Dream, Opus 21 and Opus 61 by Felix Mendelssohn, complete incidental music to Shakespeare's play. The orchestra is the Albany Symphony. Our soloists include choristers from Emma Willard School, SUNY Albany, the College of St. Rose, and Skidmore College, as well as two brilliant soprano soloists, Deborah Selig, and Sarah Davis, as well as five members of Capital Repertory Theater's team of actors, all conducted by me, David Allen Miller. The new Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller from WMHT.org. David Allen Miller conducts the Albany Symphony, and he provides commentary on the WMHT live broadcast. David's commentary is full of fascinating stories about the music, the performances, and more. In order to keep the program mostly music, some of what he provides ends up on the cutting room floor. This podcast contains no music, but it does contain all of David Allen Miller's commentary from the concert broadcast on WMHT Live on WMHT-FM, your classical companion.